When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to a Score North podcast right now, and if you're a business owner, so are your customers. In fact, I could be talking about your business right now, telling the tens of thousands of loyal fans about you and sending them to your business. Find out how you can partner with your favorite Score North podcast. Visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. Fill out the form, and we'll get in touch with you quickly. Once Phil, Judd, Declan, or others start talking about your company, you'll be amazed at how many fans start showing up. So visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. TCL, America's fastest growing TV brand. It's Purple Daily. If you're a free agent that you come in from another team, OTAs is really your first glimpse at your coach, at your new teammate, at the new playbook culture, like a little bit of everything, and it kind of works as a buffer. For example, the first phase of OTAs is just working out. You just kind of do that for two, three weeks, and you start to learn your teammates, and you start to learn guys, you start to learn the workouts, and everything. Then you go to phase two, where you get an hour on the field, and then you start to learn the playbook, and then the rookies show up on the last week of phase two, and now's where you're starting to build your team. You're starting to build your core group of your team. You're starting to see who your leaders are. You're starting to understand more of a flow, and as a rookie, you're starting to understand, okay, this is the NFL now. That right there was our friend Jeremiah Searles, Matthew Collar, ESPN's Courtney Cronin. Welcome into Purple Daily. And we have some mildly breaking NFL news to get to right off the bat, as well as uh, Adam Schefter saying on TV that OTAs do not appear as if they're going to go off. Um, Which would you rather start with, the playoff format or the possibility of OTAs being shut down, Courtney? Um, let's do the playoff format. That's fair. Okay. That's just it's, there's a conference call that's going on. We also found out uh, Dan Graziano just tweeted this that the league does not anticipate the 2020 schedule being released released later than May 9th. So it sounds like it could get pushed back. There's always that weird window that we kind of hear things leaking out that it's about the week before the draft, but or you know, typically the week before the draft, but it sounds like it could be a little bit later than that. Um, But at least they have a set date that they're not going to go any later. They don't anticipate going any later than May 9th. So it looks like the NFL playoff format will be kind of what we thought when they signed the new CBA, that there are going to be seven teams on each side in the AFC and NFC who get into the playoffs. Uh, The owners have voted to approve the expansion to 14 total teams. And uh, Kevin Seifert has a nice write-up on ESPN about this. The number two seed uh, is now going to host the number seven seed. So there will not be two buys. It's just one buy. And the big result of this is right away this year we get more playoff football. I think it's a great thing, especially this year, given all the uncertainty about the 2020 season, to know that at least on the horizon you have more playoff football. And I know there are going to be people saying it's going to water down the format. 
this was the way that this thing was trending anyways, is we saw how much intrigue there was wildcard weekend from the 2019 season. People are going to want to tap into that, i.e. streaming services, television networks. This was the way it was trending for quite some time, even before three weeks ago now, whatever it was, when they ratified the CBA. So um, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I don't think it waters stuff down. At least it might feel like that initially. I do think eventually this is going to weed out, uh, or I guess level out, and we could see you know a much better format when you instead of having you know the one seeds get the bot. You know when you look at the Super Bowl teams that have what is it the last seven years, all of those teams have had a first round bye. Yeah. Now maybe this you know could level out the playing field a little bit. I don't think we're going to feel it right away, but over time, over the next five, ten years, this could certainly help change the notion that if you don't get that one seed and you don't get home field advantage, that your road is exponentially harder to try to get to that last Sunday of the season. Yeah, no, it's it's an interesting point because the two teams having the bye has really opened the door for a pretty significant advantage there for those two teams, and now it's only going to be one, which means that you can get surprised and get knocked out if you're the one seed. And maybe it does increase the chances of non-one or two seeds because the two seed essentially, it matters because you get to host that game, but it doesn't matter anywhere near as much. I I think the uh, impact that we'll see right away is a team that starts 0-3. That's not it for you. Historically, you can only come back, at, you know, one every uh, 150 times or something. There's only a few teams that have ever started 0 and 3 and come back and ultimately made the playoffs because you just get so far behind. So if your team gets off to a slow start, you still feel like you've got a chance to get to 8 and 8, to get to 9 and 7, and still get into the playoffs, which at that point is your only goal mm-hmm. if you've started off 0 and 3. The other thing is that middle of the season, and this may even increase the intrigue at the trade deadline. We don't often see huge trades. A couple of years ago, Golden Tate got traded at the trade deadline. Um, there's a few other. The, Jordan Howard, I think, may have gotten traded at the trade deadline to Philly or something that like that. No, right. no, Jay Ajayi. That's who it was. In the year that they won the Super Bowl, he got traded mm-hmm. from Miami to Philadelphia. But now, if teams feel like they're in it, it puts more pressure on those teams that are on the bubble to try and get that last playoff seed, and it becomes especially bad if you don't make the playoffs. Uh, And I still like, Courtney, that this has the most discerning playoff format. Uh, The NBA puts in half the teams. The NHL puts in half the teams. Major League Baseball, of course, very similar uh, in that it's not letting in everybody and anybody into the postseason. Mm -hmm. So I I like that it's still hard. It still means something. But it increases the playoff races and the the in-the-bubble graphics as we go down the stretch and just gives hope to more teams that normally might not have them. And that's okay to me. Like, I'm trying to look at this with the glass half full approach because I do think that there are people who are not thrilled, especially how this treats the number two seed, now that you have to have three wins instead of two to reach the Super Bowl. Um, I get that. It's going to change the playing field for some of those higher seeds in good and bad ways. I mean, you think about it, number two seeds uh, for the last few years, specifically the last two Super Bowls, um, they've won. Like that's that's been the 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 way that this whole thing is shaken out, and you know the division, the conference division alignment, like Kevin points out in his article, uh, that a total of five times since the that format change in 2002, the two seeds have been in that situation. So, I think that they kind of get maybe the raw end of this deal 
uh, just given kind of you know the the path that they're going to have to take. Yeah, for and sure. it's definitely going to be more difficult to reach the Super Bowl, but. In a way, I think it just ups the ante that much more in that, you know, weeks 14 through 17, when you have teams that are fighting for that seventh spot, because uh, we know there's going to be three wild card teams from the AFC and the NFC, so now there's that extra spot. I think it's going to make those games more competitive. Like, think about, like, Vikings-Bengals from, like, what, three <laughs> years ago? Yeah. Like, let's say that's a different situation. I mean, obviously, that's the day that the team, the Vikings, want uh, locked up the NFC North, but let's say, you know, you're in a situation, maybe that's not the right example, but you know those boring games that ended up that end up for a lot of teams, you know, becoming a wash there at the end of the season. Well, maybe you're a seven and nine team at that point, um, and it actually is important. I think it creates good things for viewership, and it kind of changes the way that we look at some of those late-season games and thinking, oh, well, the playoff field's already set. Well, you know, it's all but one or two teams. Now it could be several teams that are fighting for at least positioning, jockeying for positioning in those final spots. Like, think about how fun it was this year when it comes down to that final play to figure out what's yes. happening with Seattle. Like, yep. I mean, I kind of hope it's like that every single year, that that final Sunday night football game means something. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of is that Seattle and San Francisco Giants game that we all tuned into like it was a playoff game to watch. And we want that every year. And I think that this increases the chances of having that with only one shot at getting the bye. If you lock up a bye, whether it's the first or second bye, a lot of teams will sit their starters or something like that. And now you're going to have to really push for it if you want that bye. And I'll be interested to see as we go forward in the future just how much that one team benefits because the number Mm -hmm. one seed doesn't always win but the one or two has as you mentioned really dominated the postseason and part of it we saw it in san francisco not only did the 49ers get to play at home after the vikings had had to travel to new orleans and then all the way out to santa clara but they also got to sit at home and do nothing and not play it was a huge huge advantage Now only one team gets it. Yeah, that team could get knocked off. Or we could see that team, the number one seed, have an even bigger advantage. It increases how much the regular season matters to fight for that one seed. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if five years from now we'll be looking at it and say, yeah, five number one seeds won the Super Bowl five years in a row, and maybe this is too much of an advantage. Yeah, and and that's why it's going to take some time for to see the real impact on this. I don't know in 2020 that we're going to be able to be like, yeah, this was a win, this was the right call, because it might honestly feel exactly like it did last year, the year before, the year before that, et cetera, et cetera. I think this where this is really going to come into play is as we see the schedule, you know, the regular season schedule get expanded further whenever that yes. happens, when they start creating that 17th game. How does that affect what this playoff seeding is going to look like in maybe, because they have until, what is it, they have until 2021 or 2022 to add that 17th game in. Um, it doesn't. It's not going to obviously take place in 2020, but we know that over the next few years they're going to add that in. So how does that affect playoff seeding when you have an entire extra game on your schedule and that's going to factor in injuries and how players are performing and you know trends and and losing streaks winning streaks i think it changes the way that the i think that's the point where we start to see the playoff format really come to a head and, and look different than it did in years past okay the other thing was adam schefter talking about how otas that there isn't uh much of a chance that 
they're going to have them. And I wrote about this, and we talked with Jeremiah Searles. You heard it at the start of the show about the potential impact on the Minnesota Vikings. And this goes for lots of other teams, too. But teams with a lot of roster turnover, if there are no OTAs, these are something that football fans could not care any less about. Uh, We reporters go out there, and we interview players at OTAs, and we write about things that they're installing and the basic storylines that are coming out of it and the rookies show up and we interview them and write about their first impressions of the league but inside the building there's a heck of a lot going on with OTAs that Jeremiah explained really really well on the show the other day and it could have a pretty big impact on a team like the Vikings that they're going to be looking for multiple rookies to be taking over starting positions, multiple free agents that are looking to learn Mike Zimmer's defense and Gary Kubiak's offense. That does put them in a pretty difficult position if we're planning on having training camp and the start of the season on time. Well, what's the one thing that we've heard uh, from any of these free agent press conferences, what do you want to call them? They're not press conferences, they're digital press conferences. Conference calls? Conference calls, that thing too. Some of them have been Zoom, some of them have been conference calls, but um, I think about what Frank Reich said today uh, when he spoke over the phone or over Zoom, whatever it was, with Indianapolis reporters about Philip Rivers. And he mentioned something, I think it was in the, he know, that Rivers knows 80 to 85% of the offense. Obviously, some of the audibles mm-hmm. are going to be different. Some of the terminology is going to be different. But that was, you know, a selling point uh, for both parties and why he would join on with the Colts. Think back to Nick Foles and why that familiarity helped him get to Chicago. He's played for Bill Lazor. He's played for Matt Nagy. He's played for John DiFilippo. Like, you know, in a shortened offseason, which Schefter, he had Tom Mayer, uh, the NFL's med- NFLPA's medical director, on his podcast, and they re-aired this on NFL Live just about an hour ago. Um, and the question was, you know, is the are we going to see football season played in 2020? And I think that, you know, Mayer handled this very well saying, you know, I don't know. He's very optimistic, um, but it's too early to tell. And he took it as far as with the offseason program. He said that, you know, it looks highly unlikely. And Adam took it a step further and said that there will not be OTAs. There mm-hmm. will not be an offseason program. And we're certainly waiting for the NFL just to be like, all right, we're nixing this, you know, uh, the official word. But Schefter, in my opinion, his word's as good as anybody. So there's not going to be an off-season program. Let's get that through our heads and realize, okay, well, what do these teams have to do if you have as many rookies like Minnesota is primed to get out of 12 draft picks uh, in April, you know, a few weeks from now? Like, you're definitely at a disadvantage if you're in that position versus where you have, I mean, obviously the quarterback position's totally different and, and having that institutional knowledge of an offense um, is huge. But that's a benefit to the Colts. That's a benefit to the Bears to have guys who already know so much of what they're going to be running in their new teams. Uh, it really makes you think, like Jeremiah told us last week on the show, that rookies are the learning curve is going to be the steepest, steepest it's ever been, and you're going to see less rookie impacts by and large uh, in the 2020 season because – a truncated season for those guys where they don't even have the chance to get in the building, learn how to work out, learn how to eat, learn how to Mm -hmm. do life as a true NFL player. That's going to hurt them in the long run. No, it definitely will. And I guess it puts a lot or even more pressure on the Vikings offense because Kirk Cousins gets to come back in an offense that he knows 95% of already with the same terminology and the same number one receiver 
very likely the same running back, which we need to talk a little bit more about where that stands right now with Delvin Cook. But assuming that they get a contract extension worked out with Delvin Cook and most of the offensive line, maybe they'll bring back Josh Klein. They brought back Dakota Dozier and Brett Jones. And the comment that I see is, why? Why are they bringing these guys back? Well, part of it could be that they know the offense already. And Dakota Dozier is somebody who was with Rick Dennison in New York. Like He knows it to a T. Brett Jones is a really intelligent player. Like These guys who are going to be fill-ins have to know the offense extremely well. So they will have an advantage there. Tajay Sharp is the only guy at this moment uh, who's going to be somewhat of an impact player who's got to step in. But Rudolph and Irv Smith, Adam Thielen, all those guys, they know exactly what they're doing. Of course, the focal point of the offense, C.J. Hamm, uh, he knows exactly <laughs> what he's doing in this offense. So everything to me this entire offseason, Courtney, points toward if your offense remains good as it was last year, that you can be one of those seven playoff teams. You might not be a number one seed. In fact, I would almost completely count that out. But I think the offense even has to be better than it was last year because there were a number of games where the defense was so good. Atlanta, Los Angeles, for example, that you just won because the defense was so good. And you didn't even have to be good offensively or explosive. This year, I think you have to be more consistent offensively all the way through, not just in the month of October, and... Uh, be one of the the five best offenses in the NFL if you're going to be one of those legitimate contenders come playoff time. And that might even rest more now on that if OTAs are indeed canceled. Well, and that, and that's why I think the Vikings are not really in great position right now, uh, just in that vein, because think about how many impact rookies they're going to need at several different spots, or not even just rookies, new starters. Think about the cornerback group. Like If you have Mike Hughes, Holton Hill, maybe another player that you draft high, I did in one of my draft sims that we can certainly get to, um, You know, those are all new starters. I mean, yeah, two of those guys have been in the program now going on three seasons, but you know, that's still the learning curve is going to be there for them. And if you don't already have that experience of playing your position um, and being able to pick up where you left off, if that's even the right way to look at this in 2020 from where you were a year ago, I think it's going to be tough on those teams specifically. So, yeah, like you said, the offense right now has a multitude of I guess, I mean, a lot of the same pieces. And, you know, yeah, what they're bringing bad depth pieces, which is important because those guys, you need depth on the offensive line, and those guys all know the offense. Um, you don't really want to be changing, making wholesale changes right now and trying to fix things uh, that you might be able to get away with doing what you were doing a year ago. And I bring that up with the offensive line. Riley Reef, you know, the thought of moving him inside, and we've kind of tossed that idea around what if they bring in Trent Williams? What if they draft a tackle? Um, do you really want to be experimenting? Is the right call to be experimenting with that move when your off-season program could be eliminated and you might get straight to training camp and have to deal with Riley Reef moving inside the guard and a brand-new left tackle? Like, that seems like a huge challenge it to me. Like, does. I don't know, that scares me does. even talking about it. Just like the thought of, um, you know, if I was planning this thing out, that would give me a headache because how do you make that work? And sure, you know, a rookie left tackle is different than somebody who was a Pro Bowl left tackle, but, you know, and, and I'm obviously throwing out the, um, the Trent Williams thing just because I need a name to throw in there. You know, it's, it's different challenges for different for different players, but playing the same position, but they're both, 
you know, challenges that could come to a head this year and really hurt your offense. So, you know, we talk about that continuity factor and that stability factor. I think the Vikings are trying to do whatever they can just because they know their battle is harder than most teams, given how much turnover they've had. Um, and, and trying to take that step forward on offense in a shortened period of time is not going to be easy. You would be totally okay with uh, bringing in Trent Williams, I think, under the current circumstances because he's been around for so long. He's been in a similar offense. And a left tackle, a lot of his value is just protecting the quarterback. So one-on-one, it's Mm -hmm. Khalil Mack, it's Trent Williams, you slow him down, you've done your job. But the point you make about moving Riley Reef potentially inside, now it seems impossible. I don't know. That how, would be really hard because yeah. that's I mean, he's played guard before. He has the capability of doing it. And I know that, you know, the argument out there is that, you know, you, you obviously need to be a little quicker on the inside, I think. Um, you know, he can certainly do that and he has the experience, but think about the footwork, think about the hand placement, think about all the things that are required, um, that are just required differently from a guard versus a tackle and, you know, the type of the type of players you're you're facing in in one-on-one in certain matchups. I mean, it's different. Um, and you're asking him essentially to learn something that he hasn't done in quite some time. Right. Yeah, it, it, that that one seems like it would be very difficult. So if they were going to do that, I think you have to include Riley Reef in a trade or you have to release Riley or, or whatever it would be and just maybe bring back Josh Klein and stick with the same interior, which is really a scary proposition. And I, I saw something from a former offensive line coach that I did want to run by you at some point in the show. So remind me, just an idea that popped into my head. But in terms of us getting through some of the notes from today and what else is going on, some eyeball emojis for Dre Kirkpatrick getting cut. Every time a former Bengal is cut or moved, it's should the Vikings be interested? And, or at least uh, one that was you know around when Zimmer was yes, still there yes. a few years ago. So, uh, if it'll be a success if Mike Zimmer coaches long enough for this not to happen anymore, right? <laughs> if he is with the Vikings long enough for us to not have this conversation. Uh, two years ago, Drake Kirkpatrick was pretty solid. Last year, he's injured a lot and did not play very well when he was out there. He's not ancient, but he's also not young either he's 30 years old and he's also not a trent williams he's not someone where they're in their 30s but they're an elite player so you just say look he's going to continue to be great he's one of those very few i'm not sure that i would have much interest in drake kirkpatrick but they also need cheap veterans and you get what you pay for yeah i mean at this point you there's so few that are left out there, right? That like, you know, you'd be you'd be giving somebody a veteran minimum deal. You can get somebody from this quote unquote bargain bin. Mm-hmm. Logan Ryan is the only other name that I can think of, at least at that position. Uh, he's, he's still out there, correct? Like you haven't seen yeah. him sign anywhere. And I think he still wants to get paid. Yeah, and that's the problem. Like 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 Adam brought Adam Schefter brought up this morning an excellent point that you and I were kind of milling over. He said, "quote A point multiple teams now have raised." Free agents that don't that don't have signed contracts by the draft, and many don't, could put themselves in jeopardy. If a team signs a player, drafts a player at a certain position, it could always rescind any agreement it had with a free agent. Different times. That's a really terrifying place to be yes. in. If you're one of these yes. guys that are still out there on the open market, now sure, if you are the elite of the elite, if you're a Jadavian Clowney, um, and I don't even know if some people think he should be in that category, considering his sack numbers the last few years and, and health history and all that, but. Him, Everson Griffin, you know some some of the other big name free agents that are still out there. Um, what are you waiting on? You know, at this point, yeah. I would try to get signed as quickly as possible because 
that's you know that's the language that's in the CBA. It's a language that is in built into the contracts. Um, and if you are one of these more higher-priced veteran players that is trying to figure out the right fit for a team, and they draft somebody, and let's say you have an agreement in place, they can pull your offer. That's not a good spot to be in. Right. Where do you go from there? Right. Yeah. I mean, I would also say though, if you are a, a team that does that, it's going to be a really bad look for you. Oh, if, sure. If you put out an offer to somebody and you come to an agreement, and then they say, "No, no, sorry, we didn't expect this person to drop in the draft," and so now we have Xavier McKinney. Sorry. And I think the same thing about the Anthony Harris deal, which we can get into later sure. about his situation is. It, it's true that you could pull the franchise tag from them. It's very rare, though, that yeah. teams do and that. There's a reason because you look they, terrible. It makes you well. You know the red uh, the the Carolina example is the one that comes to everybody's mind with Josh Norman, and and the whole thing was we couldn't come to terms of an agreement, and he got to hit free agency, goes to Washington. Um, and, you know, they got to move on with, with their situation. And obviously that was a difficult situation for both sides. You know, in the case of Anthony Harris, you know, can he really, if, if that was the case, if that played out that way, does he really get what he wants? Because, no, you know, if, if the teams aren't paying you or agreeing to pay you now what you want via a trade, because, you know, their representation's talking to his representation um, and figuring out, okay, well, if we, get, if we trade for you, what do you want? I don't think you're going to necessarily get that your second go around uh, at trying to be a free agent, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. If the if he is uh, turned loose to free agency, for lack of a better term, uh, by rescinding his franchise tag, a lot of things have changed just between now and then. Uh, mm-hmm. Cleveland, for example, which we know was interested, they signed Carl Joseph, who is a safety for the Oakland Raiders. Now, they might still be interested in adding Anthony Harris, but that's some money that they invested in somebody else. They signed and, Andrew Sandejo, too. Right. So they've filled up their secondary a little bit with other free agents, and other free agent safeties have been signed elsewhere. So you're now removing some teams from his market and making it harder on him to get the big contract that he wanted. So he might ultimately have to sign like a one-year prove-it deal if they put him in that situation. So I think you'd be much better off uh, for him and just how you look to the rest of the league by making a trade and getting him somewhere else who wants to sign him for a contract extension. But clearly, that's not exactly going smoothly. So let's talk about that a little bit more later. Uh, But we're going to take a break now when we return from Pro Football Focus, Austin Gale. He is on their draft podcast, does great work, and you and I have both draft sim. Now, you started trading in your draft sim. Which, it was the, fir- it was the wow. first one I've ever done. Um, you know, it's the quarantine. I just need to <laughs> step my game up, and I, you know, I'm trying to find yes. a lot of areas of self-improvement, and that's one of them. I want to be good at trading. Courtney, our draft scout, is just a monster that we've let out of the box and keeps growing. So we'll uh, talk about that. We're going to run our draft sims by Austin Gale. I've done one as well, and uh, also talk about... You know, Tua and Justin Herbert, an interesting report coming out that some teams have Justin Herbert higher. I want to ask him about that when we return. You're listening to Purple Daily on Score North. A quick thank you to DennisKirk.com for supporting Score North and Purple Daily. It's obviously crazy times right now, but one thing you can still do is get out and ride. And the weather seems to be telling us it's time to get you and your motorcycle ready for this year's riding season. DennisKirk.com is a Minnesota-based worldwide retailer of parts, accessories, and apparel for avid bikers of all kinds. 
Whether you ride a Harley, Cruiser, Sport Bike, Dirt Bike, or any other type of motorcycle, they have what you need. Over 160,000 parts in stock and ready to ship today. DennisKirk.com not only offers a huge in-stock selection, but also guaranteed best prices, fast same-day shipping, and a satisfaction guarantee. They truly are the best in the business. Order by 8 p.m. and get it tomorrow. $89 orders ship free, and they pay return shipping on helmets and apparel products. DennisKirk.com. Order today. Get it tomorrow. Jonathan here with the Score North download. During the coronavirus pandemic, the need remains high for our local Ronald McDonald House Charities Upper Midwest as they work tirelessly to provide food, shelter, and a wide array of support services to families with seriously ill or injured children at their Twin Cities locations. Thanks to Louisa Rise and the Minnesota Twins, one lucky person who makes a donation of any amount at scorenorth.com will receive a signed Louisa Rise Minnesota Twins jersey. Your contribution allows the Ronald McDonald House to continue to provide critical services to families dealing with a child's health crisis. To donate, please visit scorenorth.com, keyword donate. Over at scorenorth.com right now, Matthew Collar has an article listing five Viking storylines leading up to the NFL draft. Since we are counting down, we're now almost within the same month as the draft, just one more day until we're into April. And Judd Zolgad also has the third part of his five-part series of Let's Make a Deal, five Vikings trades that they were forced into making. This time, the focus is the Percy Harvin trade to Seattle. So go check that out. Over at scorenorth.com, it's all free and available at scorenorth.com and the free Scorenorth mobile app. That's been your Scorenorth download. Now back to Purple Daily. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Now we welcome onto the show from Pro Football Focus, Austin Gale. What's going on, Austin? Nothing much, man. How are you? Oh, I'm just draft simming. We've just been draft simming pretty much nonstop because we're quarantined, and actually we would have been doing that anyway. But now that tomorrow is April, it's officially... All on pedal to the metal, uh, draft simming, draft season, and so forth. So here is your first task on the show, Austin, is you have to grade our draft sims that we just did. Okay. So I'm going to start off. I'm just going to tell you who I took for the Minnesota Vikings, and I want you to give me your reaction. All right. So I went, I went with a 22, uh, Javon Kinlaw, uh, Jeff Gladney at 25, the cornerback from TCU. The Auburn corner, whose name I can't possibly pronounce, at 58. I got uh, Damon Lewis from LSU at 89. And then at 105, Jeremy Chin, the safety from Southern Illinois. Grade my drafts in. I actually really like that draft. I think the only thing that stands out for me is you didn't go after a receiver. I think this Vikings team definitely needs receiving talent in a draft class that's loaded with good wide receivers. It's interesting that you didn't go after them. However, I'm not going to knock a guy who goes after positional value. That name you can't pronounce is Noah Igbenogany, a guy I think has some of the best upside in this draft class because of his athletic ability. I think him, Gladney, Kinlaw, those are all players that are very high on PFF's board. Then you throw Jeremy Chin and Damian Lewis, who I, I really do like Damian Lewis. I talked to him at the Combine. Nasty player. His comps are Dave Jackson, a meaner version of Gabe Jackson, if that exists. I think that's a great pickup as well. All right, let me just, uh, before Courtney gives you her draft sim, uh, I just want to explain the wide receiver thing is they all kind of went off the board for me, Austin. I, I, I could see this as something that happens is that everyone has hyped up this receiver draft so much that by the time we get to the end of the second round where they have the 58th pick, that a lot of the big names are gone. So is is 
I got to a point where I thought the Auburn corner who you pronounced, and I'm not going to try, he just seemed like the best player at that time as opposed to other receivers who were maybe the 12th, 13th, 14th receiver off the board at that point. Yeah, I think if the Vikings are going to address the receiver position, I think it's got to be with one of those two first-round picks. I know they can find value on day two, but they don't need a day two guy. They need a guy to come in and be a true number one alongside Adam Thielen. Now that Stephon Diggs is out of the picture, and I think at the back end of the first round, 22-25 range, you can get a guy like Denzel Mintz, Jalen Rager, Michael Pittman Jr., maybe T. Higgins. Like That's where I start to feel like the Vikings would be comfortable taking a receiver in that spot because there will be a ton of value in that in that spot of the draft. Okay, Courtney, now your draft sim. Hi, Austin. So I engaged in some trading in my draft sim, which I've never As done one before. Does. Um, I, I am trying to expand my expertise of draft simming because that's all Matthew <laughs> and I do during the quarantine. Um, and I decided I wanted to try to get as close to the top 10 as I could. Uh, so I sent my first round pick at 25, my second round pick, um, and my third round pick, the first of the two, uh, to San Francisco, and I got their 13th thirteenth overall pick in the first round. And I, what I did with that, I drafted Tristan Wirfs, the tackle from Iowa, uh, with the thought that nothing's happening right now with... Uh, Washington and the Trent Williams deal and you know at this point the Vikings don't really have the finances unless they're able to move Anthony Harris which to me keeping him at safety right now seems like a need so I drafted Tristan Wirfs from Iowa uh, 13th overall I still had my second I still had my first start but yeah this would be my first first round pick uh, at 22 I got T Higgins uh, out of Clemson so there was a run on receivers I ended up picking him at 22 Uh, at three with my third round pick the second one that I got from the comp picks that came out a couple weeks ago I got Troy Pride Jr. the cornerback out of Notre Dame I know Mike Renner uh, one of your pals over at PFF loves him and ever since Senior Bowl his stock has continued to rise I've seen really good things about him uh, so I'd like to get him in the fold in the third round and then my fourth round pick I got an edge rusher, Jonathan Garvin, out of Miami, thinking that the Vikings could be in okay position to put a Fadio Denebo there, uh, at least to start the season and create a rotation to replace Everson Griffin's production. How do you, how did I do? Uh, I don't love this one as much, and I think I have to start with the trade, largely because you know with PFF and, and studying specifically draft trade analysis, a lot of the work that Dr. Eric Eager and another data scientist, George Jury, has done is looked at trading in the draft and they say nine times out of ten if you trade up and don't grab a quarterback you're not going to recoup that value for the picks that you gave up so trading up or an offensive tackle though up there on the positional value chart up there with wide receiver cornerback those things it's going to be so difficult for Tristan Wirfs to be as valuable as the two or three players that you're giving up in that draft to trade up and grab him so a little bit of concern there but with Tristan Wirfs a great player trading up for him maybe he doesn't meet that value after that free pride in addition to Mike Renner, I, I, I do love that kid as well. I think some size concerns with him, but he's got track speed. He's a feisty player. I talked to him at the Senior Bowl. He's a very smart dude between the years. I think he can play multiple positions in the NFL. I think that's a good pick on day, late day two, early day three. Jonathan Garvin, I, I think, will struggle to you know start in the NFL, but I do think he could be a depth player. He just doesn't have that next-level athleticism to be a premier starting edge defender in the NFL. But in the fourth round, you're grabbing depth pieces. You're grabbing guys that could potentially be contributors down the road. I think you have to start with, and I'm going back to T. Higgins. I like T. Higgins in the first round. I think T. Higgins 
will surprise people with his with his athleticism and size combination. I think going after a receiver makes sense for the Vikings, as I told Matt. Talking with uh, Austin Gale from Pro Football Focus, does a tremendous podcast, two-for-one podcast with Mike Renner. Very fun uh, podcast to listen to. And as I was flying out to the Combine, I was listening to that, just binging episodes on the flight uh, to try and get my mind around what was going to happen in this draft. So you have been a tremendous help, Austin, for getting us prepared to analyze this Vikings draft. Uh, Now, as we talk about the different positions that they need, there are so many, (laughs) Austin, that... uh, uh, they can really go a number of different directions, but I think what we're going to find out, and I and I want to know your opinion on this, is whether they think they're trying to fill spots right away for 2020 because they still are pushing to be a competitive team, or whether they should be looking down the road. And I think drafting a tackle is sort of looking down the road a little bit because they still have Reef and uh, Brian O'Neill, but drafting something like a safety in the first round if they move Anthony Harris, that might be we need to plug a position right away. I kind of feel like teams that try to plug positions right away get themselves in trouble, um, but how do you see that? You know, it's always that. I mean, drafting for need, regardless of where you are, you know, in terms of the Super Bowl chase, often leads to negative results because you end up reaching at a position you feel like you need and not getting the results you need with that position to actually make that push. I mean, PFF has been at the forefront of this idea of draft, draft or value, draft the best player available sign need in free agency and i think with that being said the vikings would be smart to take the best player available with the draft apple they have i think they have enough needs and enough roster holes to where they can afford to really just take the best player available grabbing javon kinlaw and cornerback in the first three rounds is a smart decision for this vikings team because it matches need and it will match value at the spot that they're selecting i think it does make sense for them to weigh both options but if you find yourself forcing need at a certain position say offensive tackle at the back end of round one, and you grab a Ezra Cleveland out of Boise State, maybe you're reaching at that offensive tackle position. I think it might make more sense for you to go for a position that meets value and also offers some, um, obviously, immediate return. So speaking of immediate return, let's say that they stick at 22 and 25. uh, No trading allowed. So they end up having an option to get a receiver with one of those first-round picks, and let's say that they do with 22. At 25... Would you look more closely at trying to find an edge rusher, a premium guy um, that could start day one and try to fill that production that you lose from Everson Griffin? Like, what what to you is more important, keeping that pass rush where it's at, or trying to get a Christian Fulton, a Trayvon Diggs, uh, any of those corners that would be available to you in the mid to late first round? Yeah, my opinion is at the back end of the first round, where the Vikings are selecting, the two positions that will have the most value to them are wide receiver and cornerback. This is not a great edge class. After Chase Young, the drop-off is significant. You're looking for guys that are incomplete, won't deliver right out of the gate. That's something that the Vikings don't necessarily need to force at this point. They can grab a wide receiver and cornerback in that spot, in that range from 20 to 35. Names that come to mind on the cornerback side, I think Jalen Johnson, of Utah, Bryce Hall, Virginia, Trayvon Diggs, Alabama, all of those guys should be coming off the board between picks 25 and 50. And with that being said, go grab yourself a cornerback. Don't necessarily force um, edge defender in that slot because I just don't think the draft is a rich edge defender class. Go draft the guys that have a ton of value and also offer um, talent in in those things. Uh, Austin, receivers are really interesting here because it seems like even though it is a deep receiver draft, there's three that are above the rest in Judy and Lamb and Ruggs. Um, but when we talk about the trade-up scenarios, is 
are they head and shoulders enough above other guys like Denzel Mims that the Vikings, let's say one of them drops to 16. You talk about those trade-up scenarios, but there's exceptions to every rule. Would it be worth it if they could get one of the top three receivers? I'd argue no. I just don't see the value because it is a deep receiving class. Yes, those guys, CeeDee Lamb, Jerry Judy, and Henry Ruggs, are the upper echelon guys that are all ranked inside the top 10 on PFF score, but you're still going to get a plus contributor to work opposite of Adam Thielen where the Vikings are currently picking. Denzel Mims, Jalen Rager, T. Higgins, Michael Pittman Jr., Brandon Ayuk of Arizona State. One of those guys is going to be on the board, and yes, they're not in the same tier as Lamb, Ruggs, and Judy, but they still offer high-end wide receiver two, if not wide receiver one type of potential. I think the Vikings would be smart go after Denzel Mims of Baylor. He has the size. He has the athleticism. I come from the Julio Jones light. I mean, this guy has freakish raw ability, and I think it's on an expanded route for He can have a ton of success. We saw that at the senior bowl. He showed out at the combine. If he's on the board at pick 22, I think the Vikings would be smart to pull the trigger because this guy's stock is rising with every day. Somebody else's stock who seems to be rising, at least in recent mock drafts that we've seen, Todd McShay put one out today, Cynthia Freeland from NFL Network had one as well, uh, is Justin Herbert. And I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you see the Tua and Herbert, I guess the, you know, the, maybe the interchangeability of like where they get drafted if one goes ahead of the other that you might not be expecting. What, where is his stock at currently from what you're hearing around the league? Because um, it seems like the interest that teams are having, at least right now, and, and they're obviously not able to get guys in for workouts, but, you know, does any of that hurt him? Or could maybe it help him because there still kind of is this this mystique about him that we just don't know, you know, what he pans out to at this next level. Yeah, I mean, to start with Tua Tungabailoa, I do think his stock is somewhat getting affected for the fact that these team doctors aren't able to come and check what's going on with his injury. And I think, yes, he's gotten approved by third-party doctors and those things, but teams are going to be hesitant to take him in the top five, if they can't 100% confirm this guy's going to play it down in the NFL and doesn't have this significant injury risk. I think he still goes inside the top five. It's going to be a bidding war to trade up and grab him between the Los Angeles Chargers and the Miami Dolphins trying to trade up with the Detroit Lions. As for Justin Herbert, my opinion is, you know, if the Jacksonville Jaguars, who feel like they're committed to Gardner Minshew, don't opt for uh, Justin Herbert inside the top ten at that ninth overall selection, I think you see him fall a bit. I don't think there are other teams that would want to pull the trigger. I think the Las Vegas Raiders get mentioned, but John Gruden and Justin Herbert aren't going to mesh. You know, that, that, I've heard that a lot from others as well. It's just he doesn't have the same mindset, same competitive fire that John Gruden wants. He wants that out of Derek Carr, and he wants that out of his next quarterback. After that, I think the you know maybe the floor for Justin Herbert is the 23rd overall pick to the New England Patriots. Yes, they have Jared Stidham, and they signed Brian Hoyer to a veteran deal, but they are willing to swing the bat on a quarterback. They're not in a position to think we can't afford to do that. And I think at 23, either Justin Herbert or Jordan Love, depending on what Bill Belichick likes more, I think he pulls the trigger on one of those two names. Now, Austin, if that is the case, that means the Vikings will have passed on either one. Would the Vikings be wise to draft Jordan Love or Justin Herbert if they get there? Even though they extended Kirk Cousins, it's usually a good idea to have some other option, and other teams have succeeded by drafting quarterbacks fairly high. Is it a crazy idea for the Vikings to take either one of those if they show up there? I I personally argue no, just because I do think the Vikings are trying to maximize this window with Kirk Cousins under contract and the roster they had in place. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, 
I don't think either of those two quarterbacks are worth it for a team that the Vikings are in a position the Vikings are in. The half Kirk Cousins, I think the Patriots are in a way different position. They're potentially tanking for Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields in 2021 with the quarterback situation they have. But Kirk Cousins, with the right supporting cast, can make a push in now what is an expanded playoff in the NFL. Like They're closer, way closer than the New England Patriots. And these quarterbacks, in my opinion, Justin Herbert and Jordan Love, just good enough to swing the bat at that position where they're picking right now. Is there any sort of value pick or maybe a, a, an early day two pick? Because you you, th- you talked about the offensive line, and that's, that's kind of my thought of, at least in my draft sim, of why I traded up to try to fix this uh, as quickly as I possibly could, while also addressing the wide receiver need. Let's say, because Matthew and I were talking about this, just how difficult or how much more responsibility and weight is going to be put on the Vikings offense with a potential shortened off-season program to try to get to that next step um, and with an offensive line that, you know, so far has only brought back three depth players uh, and needs an upgrade at both interior, you know, both guard spots and still kind of a big question mark of what's going to happen at left tackle. Is there anybody in a, as let's say a day two pick, assuming it's still going to be rounds two and three, um, that you could see as a good fit in a short period of time with a truncated off season, knowing that you know the rookie experience is just going to be different this year? Yeah, absolutely. I think top of day two, I don't see a ton of value, and specifically in the interior offensive line class. I think top of day two, if you wanted to grab an offensive tackle, the guy I mentioned that wouldn't be great in round one, but great in round would be fantastic in round two is Ezra Cleveland of Boise State. You know, in that you know second round conversation, I think he makes sense for the Minnesota Vikings. I also like late day three, maybe or late day two, early day three, Jonah Jackson, the former Rutgers guard that transferred to Ohio State this past season, and really blew it up. Great in pass protection. I don't love what he does as a run blocker, but I do think he comes in and is immediately one of the better interior offensive linemen from a pass protection standpoint for the Vikings. And you mentioned earlier Damian Lewis. I do think Damian Lewis fits that system well. He's a mean dude who can play in the middle. He's good against run and in the and in pass protection, ranked inside the top ten in PFF grade this past year. This is a good interior offensive line class when you start taking them off the board in round three and round four. However, I don't see second-round type of players that have high impact in this class. Uh, Austin, how are you guys handling uh, isolation? Are you guys doing okay there? I, I know you can't get together in your cool little building in Cincinnati. Are you and Mike doing the <laughs> podcast okay without being near each other? Yeah, I mean, things are good. I mean, compared to the other situations around America, I think mean, PFF's in a really good spot. We're working from home. Mike and I are still FaceTiming every day and every night. You know, we, we can't drink together. That's unfortunate. But we, we are in a good place, and we're still able to put out content, and we're really fortunate the position we're in. All right. Well, that's that's good to hear. And uh, at least through FaceTime, you can see Mike's beautiful hair. So uh, follow him on Twitter at PFF underscore Austin Gale, G-A-Y-L-E. And definitely listen to the two-for-one podcast. It is an excellent, excellent draft breakdown thanks for coming on austin we'll do it again soon man of course thank you yep, for sure all right whew, whew. there's a so, lot there you just jonathan i need you to just hit the football thing the thing that says football because heads football reset take a deep breath so much football right there let's go back to our draft sims 
All right, so he loved mine and hated yours, which is obvious. Didn't hate it. He said he didn't love it as much. Yeah. But, I mean, he, he's right. Like, I think that this, there's no exact science to how to execute a, a great trade uh, in that first round unless it's really – unless you see a quarterback that's there and for the taking. I just think there's so much uncertainty about this offensive line and what could happen over the next three weeks leading into the draft with, you know, are they still in it? for Trent Williams? Do they plan on taking, you know, making that the focal point of getting something done before the draft? So if not, they can address it in the draft. And, you know, to me, to tr- you're not going to get value for somebody who could potentially be a day one starter at 22 or 25 as an offensive lineman. I mean, even look at Garrett Bradbury from last year. He was the 18th yep. overall pick, and we know the struggles that he went through as a rookie, and granted center is different than tackle. We know that. And the guard class was different last year. It was better. Um, but that's, you know, that was just my rationale there. Like, I'm not typically somebody who, you know, is a huge proponent of trading up anyways, but if you could, you know, my hope at the time, just to explain my rationale, was that I could at least try to get close to getting Makai Becton. I obviously failed at that, but I got, I think, the second-best tackle in the class. I do think that if you're going to do it, that it's either one of the top three receivers or it's one of the top tackles that you would do it for. The the second receiver thing, so that's where I got left out to dry. And that's what's fun about draft simming is because usually you come up with not filling all of the needs and you go, oh, okay, so I drafted the best players for each situation. And, yeah, I came out without a wide receiver. But having two tight ends who catch the ball all the time and a history of Gary Kubiak teams relying heavily on one receiver, namely um, Andre Johnson during his prime, I think they could manage to do that and continue to draft receivers later. Let's say Tyler Johnson is on the board. Mm -hmm. You select him in the fourth or fifth round. We only gave him the first three rounds of what we did. But maybe you select more of a developmental receiver, and then you just try to work around it. But last year, Stephon Diggs, for a good portion of the season, is the only receiver out there, and the offense still was able to hum. And I think that's just sort of the way that they design it by using a lot of two running backs, two tight ends, and they could survive – Not that I wouldn't like to have drafted another receiver, but the way I went was to get two corners because you're just so desperate there. It's hugely valuable positional value-wise. And then I think that because the tackles are going to go quick off the top, looking for a guard who can fill in right away is really necessary here. Uh, I had a thought, though, because I saw a former offensive line coach who I follow on Twitter because you want to hit the football thing again, Jonathan, just real quick. Just, you know, hit the football thing. Football. Football. I mean, who doesn't follow former offensive line coaches on Twitter? I mean, you're just here to grind the tape. That's right. Uh, Paul Alexander, he tweeted four centers that he thinks are plug-and-play for next year, and it popped into my mind, and this would change with OTAs, I guess, but is there any chance that we see the elf line move from Garrett Bradbury to guard, and they go with elf line and Bradbury a guard and draft a center? Do they really want to go that route again? I mean, the whole argument, I mean, where where would you be drafting this guy? You, you probably like third round, second round. And that's where they got Alfine. That makes sense. I mean, you know, at least you wouldn't be doing it any earlier than that. I think I could get behind it from that, but you know, 
you want to keep taking guys out of position. I mean, Elfline is not good at guard. He was much better at center. Do we, you know, Garrett Bradbury, his biggest thing is length. Like, I mean, even dating back to the yeah. pre-draft process last year, like he was considered undersized for the position. His arm length and wingspan was, you know, that was the biggest thing that came to knock. It's not the athleticism. Um, and I'm sure you could find that at a third-round pick. But do you really want to keep moving that stuff around with a truncated offseason? And asking guys yeah, to try to figure this out. Part. I mean, that's offensive line to me. This creates a humongous, you know, kerfuffle yep. for the Vikings as you go into this because of the time that you're not going to get with these guys to gel and develop and, and put them in new positions. I mean, yeah, that's, that's tough. Right. That's right. Moving guys around is not something you want to do. It just stuck in my mind that there was somewhat of a conversation about when they drafted Bradbury. Could he play guard and have Elfline stick at center? And then, of course, they did the opposite, and it did not work out well at all. Um, but considering his athleticism, considering that teams started just putting their nose tackles right over him and dominating in this division, and I expect that to happen again, I it did run through my mind if there was someone like Lloyd Cushenberry, which... You know, yeah. What a center name. I, I would be all for it just for that. If he's there in the late second or he's in the third round, like could you fill it out that way because Bradbury is able to play guard and you are just really in a bad position at guard at this moment. Like you said, Elfline proved that he can't do it, but he's going to be a starting guard next season, almost guaranteed at this point, unless something really changes. Right. I actually did another, as we were wrapping up with Austin, I did another draft sim. That's great. I'm Um, so proud of you. It's just, you know, this is, this is a way of life. Um, and I, I ended up accepting trades. I didn't propose any um, because I wanted to see, you know, the type of haul that I could get, you know, for fifth round picks that I could eventually trade away. But um, the third round guard thing that came, came into the forefront for me for, with, uh, I got Ben Breederson, I believe his name is, from Michigan. And if you can address the offensive line Anywhere late day two, I think you are in a good position because, you know, regardless of what happens with, you know, bringing back Josh Klein, as you mentioned, maybe that's an option because you need depth and you need somebody who knows this system. Like, you know, what else are you going to do with that pick? If you don't pick a corner in the first or second round, if you don't pick a wide receiver in the first round, I mean, those are the most important things. I think everything after that, you're probably rolling the dice. I mean, how can you honestly expect that many guys uh, to come in and start having an immediate impact? Even though you need them to, you need to hit on your draft picks. I just feel like it's unrealistic to think that it's going to play out that way. Yep. Exactly. Uh, Let's take a break and we'll come back. And I want to discuss your piece on Anthony Harris. I also included Anthony Harris in the most interesting storylines leading up to uh, the NFL draft. So things that we're watching for for the next month. Let's talk about that. And we're going to get a Miami Dolphin perspective. So we go from uh, this is we're covering here on the show, the battle of week 16, the Bengals yesterday to now the Miami Dolphins. But they are in a really interesting swing spot for the NFL draft. So we're going to talk with Cameron Wolf. At 3.30, he covers the Dolphins for ESPN. So we'll take a break. We'll come right back. You're listening to Purple Daily on Score North. Score North and many of our local advertising partners remain open for business, and you can hear from them daily right here on Score North, scorenorth.com, and the free Score North mobile app. We are all in this together. Hear how you can support our local community by visiting scorenorth.com. Keyword open. Hey, Score North listeners. It's Phil Mackey here for Federated Mutual Insurance Company, which is here to give business owners that peace of mind that you need 
when you've built a company with your blood, your sweat, your tears, maybe not your blood, but whatever, like you built a company and you want your insurance team to be ready with a game plan that helps you recover if needed, recover smoothly so you can get on with running your business. Federated has a century of experience in helping business owners. You can find out more about the industries Federated protects at their website, federatedinsurance.com. And remember, Federated Insurance, it's their business to protect yours. TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. TCL, America's fastest growing TV brand. It's Purple Daily. Looking for everything. Middle of the field picked off at the five yard line by Anthony Harris. Welcome back into Purple Daily. Jonathan, I would like you to say on the radio what you just said to me off the air. Uh, That the city of Toronto has just banned all public events until at least June 30th. Wow. Wow. Is right. So, goodbye, National Hockey League. Uh, See you next year. NBA probably uh, out, too. Where's the NHL draft this year? Do you guys know offhand? I do not know the answer to that question, but I think that they'll probably do that the same way the NFL will do it, right? Like digitally, but it's going to uh, be scheduled weird. to be in Montreal. Okay, it's going to be really weird though because there will be no champion to speak of, and they'll yeah. just be drafting players for the next season. So, uh, yeah, that pretty much puts the end to any thought that the NHL is going to come back if the biggest city in the NHL is saying nothing until at least June 30th. And it also speaks to what we were talking about before. You can kiss OTAs goodbye. And I think best case scenario, Courtney, is that we start training camp on any semblance of the correct timeline. But we were talking about it a little bit yesterday. I think the, the fewest number of games that they could play and still have a legitimate season is 12. Mm-hmm. That's a great number because 10 is too few. 14 feels like kind of a reach at this point when you think about a 16-game season. Um, it feels like we're going to miss at least a month. And I know that I'm just speculating. I'm not trying to get anybody's you know, hurt anybody's feelings or say anything that you know is not true um, or be all doomsday about it. But think about it. Like, if the season gets pushed back or if it gets shortened, that means that training camp's not starting on time. And what we're hearing, you know, being the possibility of that being thrown out there with no OTAs and no off-season program, well, when are teams going to get back in the building to begin with? I mean, is that going to be the middle of July? When do teams reconvene? Do you have to add in uh, the rookie minicamp and all of that time that you would have had with your draft class uh, and the guys you bring in on college, you know, college free agents, all of that stuff. I mean, we, we forget about the undrafted guys, too, and how this is really going to hurt them. Um, if you still want to go through that process, when does that happen? Does it happen late July and then you start training camp the middle of August? It's possible, and then that means you're probably pushing back the start of the season until October 1st yeah. or at least, you know, yeah. beginning of October. So 12, if you went 12 games... I mean, the month, yeah, that's October through the end of December. It's perfect. In 1987, they played, what was it, three weeks with uh, scab players? and then The played, replacement players, yeah, yeah. And then played the rest of the season with everyone else. So, you know, somewhere in that in that range, I think, still makes a legitimate season if you were only missing four uh, games or three games or something like that. But I think what we're seeing more and more is that the hope that we've been holding out that this won't affect the NFL too much is probably not going to come to fruition. But 
uh, as I told our friend Donald Jones on Twitter earlier, because he was talking about, you know, how can we be talking about moves when we don't even know if there's going to be a season? That's like, right. It's the only thing we can do, though. I know. It, and, and that's like at this point, I think everybody's kind of calmed down um, over the uproar last week with the sub-GM subcommittee conference call that apparently turned uh, pretty terse. And the Roger Goodell memo that came out threatening some sort of punishment for teams that speak out against the draft happening um, when it's supposed to happen. Like, this is honestly a great thing, I think, for everybody. And I've kind of changed my opinion on it. Like, I feel badly for teams that have to scramble. And the amount of stress and just logistical challenges this is going to present where it's not going to be the draft that we know it to be trades are probably not going to be as frequent or as blockbuster as we've seen before um, outside of maybe a couple that have already kind of been in the works in the first round that you could anticipate seeing but it's it's nice to know that we at least have this on the horizon because the thought of not having football uh, is pretty tough and we talked about this on ESPN radio over the weekend, there was a report that came out. Um, I think it was more just speculation than actual reporting, but from uh, you know the Sports Business Journal, um, one of their reporters had talked to a bunch of ADs across the country about the possibility of actually moving up the college football season to have that start in July uh, because of the threat of the of the virus coming back at some point in the fall when things mm-hmm. get colder, and you know maybe you could mitigate all of uh, that happening by starting the season earlier, well, that creates logistical challenges in its own right by getting guys on campus, kind of like the NFL. Like, I mean, you know, college football doesn't have its off-season program going on right now, and that jump from from senior year in high school to freshman or redshirt freshman, whatever you are, is massive. That's why guys get to campus in June. Um, So how would that even work? I mean, it's, it's tough to project out right now and just, like, think about a realistic option for a shortened season because of what that does to your off season in the program there. But it's it's certainly something that we're going to have to keep talking about because it does feel inevitable as all this stuff keeps happening. And obviously, you know, if, if the curve does get flattened, like let's, and these aren't dates that are set in stone. Like they're not, you know, it could potentially, you know, I saw yesterday, what is it? Virginia kept its shelter-in-place order, stay-at-home order, until June 10th. And that's a scary thought because that's that's two months away, more than two months away. But who's to say that maybe that doesn't get waived if this thing starts to get better? And, you know, I try to look at it with a glass-half-full approach because it's hard to get by if you don't do that. Right. Um, but, I mean, yeah, it's just we got to keep – stuff on the on the table like keep planning for the future but anticipate it's going to look different yeah, the harder we work at it now the better it will be and the shorter this will have to last so that's sort of an important message i think for especially the bros that were out there shirtless playing volleyball the other day when i was shooting hoops by myself at the park there's like 10 guys all playing volleyball together i'm like hey, that's not really social distancing there top gun um but uh <laughs> you know whatever it's well the thing in new york didn't they start zip tying basketball nets together so people can't hoop yeah which is annoying because last night i was at the basketball court and there's three of us uh, for four hoops and we're all spread out playing each at different hoops just shooting by ourselves and i thought thank you my social distancing friends like this is how this should be done like people should still be able to shoot baskets but you just can't play you know big pickup games and there's no real way to stop that from happening unless like you said they zip tie the nets but that would be my nightmare you know what i thought about I don't know. Did you play this game as a kid? Because I saw a kid yesterday. I was on a run. 
and uh, someone in my mom's neighborhood had a like a hockey thing. <laughs> what's the what's it called? It's um you know like the guy's got the holes in it and you try to hit it in certain areas. Oh yeah, sure, yeah. So he was doing that and that was obviously done in front of the garage door. Um we used to play this game called butts up and <laughs> it was with a tennis ball and you know, you need like one or two people, but you could certainly play it by yourself where you throw <laughs> excuse me. You throw All that the draft bo- simming. Is just I know. Gone it, just, to you. it just yeah took the air right out of my lungs. Um, it's uh, you throw the tennis ball at the wall, and it's like the first person who like if it touches somebody in the process, um, then you have to immediately touch the garage, or if the person throws the ball to the garage before you get there, um, then you're out. It's like essentially it's like you know one sided dodgeball. In a way, hmm. and I'm wondering, like, is that game going to see a resurgence? I honestly may go off. <laughs> is that outside. a real game, or did you yeah, invent we, this yourself? No, no, we played this in my neighborhood with the neighborhood kids. Hmm. It was called Butts Up, and you would throw the tennis ball. I mean, if there's anybody out there listening who played a version of this game, maybe you called it something else, um, where you'd throw the tennis ball at the garage door, whatever surface. You know, you could throw it at the side of the house, but um, I didn't want to take the paint or the siding off my mom's house, so we decided to do it on the garage door. And you would end up like, you know, there's like four or five kids. And I think you could play it by yourself. So I'm going to play it maybe after I get off air here at 4 o'clock. We had a game called Fuzzball that we invented. And it was, you took a tennis racket and a tennis ball. And then the other person is in the street. So don't do this unless you're on a uh, street that doesn't have many cars. And the other person would stand uh, a ways away and you would hit the tennis ball. If it went over their head, it was a home run. If it went in front of them, it was a base hit. And so you'd have to fill up the bases. So it was just like baseball with two people. And so you had to decide, like, do you want to take away home runs by being back deep? Or do you want to take away base hits? You try, you know, and you could sort of, with a tennis racket, control where you hit the ball. And if it goes out of the street, then you're out. Or if you catch it, it's three outs. Because it was really hard to catch a tennis ball flying deep in the air. So there you go. There's one if you have some... A street and some kids throw them a tennis ball and a tennis racket and go play. Um, but hopefully people continue to socially distance. Think of it this way. If you socially distance now, you can have football later. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, that that's, that's what I'm doing. Like, I, you know, obviously you're doing this for other people and for your family and to not get other people sick. But I want football in the fall. I want to have something to look forward to. I think everybody does. Yeah, for sure. So let's just continue to go forward and talk about it as if there will be football, because I get sad inside when we talk about it any other way. Uh Anthony Harris, you wrote a piece on ESPN about the different options. I included it as my biggest story going into April here as we uh, march toward the April 23rd draft. Let's let's lay out which options they have and which might be the best. Uh, I think that the option of rescinding his franchise tag is a very bad look for them and would hurt Anthony Harris's chances of getting a good contract elsewhere. Not something they want to do, especially with how respected Harris is in the locker room. That's not a good look for you. Um, but trading him is just th- that conversation seems to have come to a dead halt. Yeah, and, and it's probably for a multitude of reasons. Either the Vikings are asking too much. And I know Mary Kay Cabot of Cleveland.com um, had said it was a second or in her third round pick, um, you know, somewhere in that range, which I guess was too high in the compensation, at least that Cleveland would have provided because they like Anthony Harris. He obviously has connections there. Um, across the board, across you know multiple coaches, um, with Kevin Stefanski being there and bringing over several pieces uh, to f- outfit his staff, 
that they were interested, but the talk has died down. And the Giants were a team that I mentioned in the piece. I remember hearing right before the start of free agency that he was one of their top targets. And then he gets franchised, and the talk kind of dies down, and I check back in with the source. I'm like, well, what the hell happened? And they're like, well, it kind of scared him off. Like, the franchise kind of spooked them. The franchise tag did, that they were going to have to go all in because they knew that Harris was probably going to be wanting uh, a very lucrative salary on a tag and trade. And so, you know, I look at that situation and I'm like, well, is there a reason we're at a stalemate? Maybe the Vikings look at the situation and think, hey, we have until the deadline, which as we know right now is October. I don't know if that would change if the season gets moved. Um, But you already have so much instability in the secondary with a brand new crop of starting corners. Maybe don't get into that situation where mm-hmm. you have to bring in a brand new safety to play opposite Harrison Smith, even if it is somebody like a Xavier McKinney or an Antoine Winfield Jr., you know, high, high, uh, high round draft picks. But it's, uh, it's interesting because we haven't heard anything yet. And, the one that everybody keeps asking me about, I'm sure you get it too, is, well, what if they traded, did a straight-up player-for-player trade, traded Harris for Trent Williams? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it obviously would have to, you know, the Vikings could move that uh, $11.41 million cap hit off their books. They'd be absorbing Trent Williams, who has a $14.5 million cap hit. Um, But you at least have a little bit more space to do that, um, given where they're at right now and what, getting off of uh, Harris's responsibility, financial responsibility would do for you. But um, it's just, I I just don't feel like they, I I feel like the Vikings have been the ones kind of throughout this that have been pulling out. It was more of a leverage play from my understanding to franchise him at that point, but it didn't necessarily pan out the way that either side thought it would, because I think Anthony Harris probably thought he would have been signed to another team right now via trade. That's right. I'm sure that they thought as soon as they franchise tagged him, we'll trade him to another team, we'll get a second round draft pick, and we'll look like geniuses. And no one seems willing to do that, so now we have to wait it out. And maybe on draft night, they're able to move him. I don't like the idea of a straight up for Trent Williams, because Washington's probably going to be forced to just cut Trent Williams, or never let him play again, which talk about bad looks for a bad organization. I know, and they've (laughs) seriously, if you're trying to turn a new leaf over and get, you know, the ghost of Bruce Allen out of there, this is not the right one um, right hill to die on right away, but they have been adamant that they're not going to cut him, so you're going off of that right now, even though it kind of feels like the Vikings and maybe other teams are waiting to see who jumps first. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But right now they're saying like they're they're standing guard in a way and just saying like nope we're not going to take anything less than what we want which you know it was rumored for a while it was a second round pick and then that was kind of debunked that they'd go even a third rounder or something else maybe even throwing in a player in for um, you know we don't see too many player for player trades straight up but maybe a player and a pick a later pick or a you know future pick what have you but it's definitely something to keep an eye on uh, you know. I think Harris presents you still with nice trade leverage. Uh, By the way, just circling back to what we were talking about before, it's almost like our friend Kevin Seifert from ESPN was listening because he just published an article with this title. So if you were feeling bad about us telling you to go out and play child games in the street because there's going to be nothing to do and no football, 
the title of his article is NFL Executives Planning for Season to Start on Time with Fans yeah. in the Stands. And he quotes Jeff Pash, who is the Executive Vice President and General Counsel of the NFL, saying, that is our expectation. Am I certain of that? I'm not certain I'll be here tomorrow, but I'm planning it. Uh, and in the same way, we're planning on having a full season. So the NFL is going forward as if they're going to start with full seasons on time, and uh, it is definitely not a certainty, as he said. But at very least, there's that to look forward to, that yeah. no, nobody from the NFL has said yet that they're canceling this thing or anything else. I mean, uh, the NFL has clearly taken the stance that we will, the, the virus does not dictate our business. Um, even the Olympics having to postpone until 2021, the NFL has still stayed the course. They're the only sports yep. league, I think, out of Taiwan basket—it's Taiwan basketball, there's a Russian like non-contact hockey league, I think. There's a few others that are like <laughs> yeah. still staying Powering the course through. right now. Um, and the NFL obviously leading that charge. I think it's the right move because at least for right now, you know, like what's what really is the point in trying to make some declaration right now? Like why wouldn't you try to plan for this thing? You know, certainly they have contingency plans that they're working on. Like, I guarantee with the draft, I mean, yes, that's still supposed to happen in Vegas with no fans, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they're certainly planning for that to not have to happen in Vegas if it comes to that. They have to be. I mean, they're it's a billion-dollar enterprise. They can't just be like the day before, oops, like you can't go to Vegas because there's a massive outbreak and we can't risk all of these prospects getting sick. Of course they're planning to do it digitally or remotely from Roger Goodell's house or from some studio in New York. Of course they are. But, you know, same thing with the NFL season, like, plan for it to happen on time with fans in, in a normal experience that we would be used to. Um, but if it ends up that we can't have it like that, then you just, I mean, what's, there's no point all these months out to try to predict what's going to happen or at least say like, well, we think coronavirus is going to be at X level in September. So we should go ahead and already push it off. Right. Yeah, it's very it's very hard to figure that out. There's there's no benefit to saying right now when it's so far out in the future. Yeah, uh we're really scared this isn't going to happen because if you uh do that, well, I mean, I guess you could admit that you are concerned it's not going to happen, but the with the NFL going forward with its off season for the most part normally here with the draft and free agency, um, it makes sense to not make any declarations yet and start to plan as if you're going to do it and then, like you said, have a backup plan. So that's kind of the latest from Kevin Seifert. And back to the Anthony Harris point, I, I think we're starting to look at sort of this, has, this hasn't gone well for the Vikings. This is not something that has worked out up until this point. Best case scenario with the Anthony Harris situation is what? Is it that he signs a contract extension and you have Harrison Smith and Anthony Harris to make up for your weakened cornerback position next season and then you deal with the salary cap hit later? Is best case scenario that you get a third round pick in the draft for him and maybe take another safety there in a draft that has a number of very intriguing safeties? What are we looking at as being good for the Vikings in in a situation that right now does not look great for them. Well, I'm still going to go back to my Trent Williams point that the best case scenario there is you upgrade your offensive line, albeit kind of pricey to do so if you're still keeping Riley Reef in the fold. But for an offense that, like you mentioned, throughout this show is going to have to carry 
a pretty big burden next year, considering the off-season program's all but shot, um, and has to be better. Like, you know, getting him in the fold would be great, and then you could trade Anthony Harris, and, you know, you adjust what your draft strategy is going to be, maybe taking a safety with your first first-round pick or your second first-round pick, what have you, and you could still address the cornerback spot. Um, so that's one scenario. But from the stability factor keeping Anthony in the fold for now when you really have no rush at this point to trade him you can trade him before the deadline like there's going to be other players that become available as teams cut guys and you know it might not be starting caliber guys but let's say you draft somebody at least then you have a depth option yeah. like you could you can move him by the trade deadline maybe you're addressing another positional need at that point um or, you know, there's multiple good good ways, scenarios that could work out. Another one would be getting him in the fold, um, doing keeping him in the fold. Have, Anthony has a leverage play here, too. He can go sign that thing tomorrow if he wants. He could do it right now. Like, the second he signs that, they are on the hook for that cap hit. And until they, until they do that, like, or until he does that, it, we're at the standstill. So he could go do that, and then they'd have till the... the deadline in this summer to figure out when you know what the long-term deal could potentially look like but worst case scenario is it's if that happens it's one year and then you address this when he's 30 years old and you either move on from him or um you know you become in need to either promote one of your safeties that you draft or you know go spend a high pick on a safety next year if uh, Anthony Harris decided to sign the franchise tag, do you think he plays on it, though? I mean, or do you think he would even sign the franchise tag to play on that number? I mean, if you're Anthony Harris, you were undrafted, and so $11 million yeah, is like, a lot of money. But at it, the same time, you're looking for a lot more than that, and someone else would probably give it to you. But you have gotten that. Like, that's the thing. Like, let's be real about this. Like, they tagged him with the intention of trading him, and now... There's no offers, at least nothing that's come to fruition yet. So that tells you a number of things. The Vikings asking price is too high, and Anthony's asking price is probably too high. So if 11.41 is what you can get, and that's all guaranteed, you get that all this year, why wouldn't you take that? Yeah. If I, it's unrealistic to think that you're going to get be getting paid 12 or 13, I mean, like I said with the Giants, like the tag scared them off. They clearly didn't want to even pay that much for Anthony Harris because they knew that he was going to be wanting um, – a salary of the figure that I just stated. And I don't think that's a bad play, like, you know, for, for him. But, like, do you do you run the risk of him holding out? Well, that's what I'm thinking is that he probably will, even though the CBA has now made it harder for players to hold out. Because... For veteran players like him who are on, um, you know, this isn't him trying to, like, negotiate the on the fourth year of his rookie deal like someone like Dalvin Cook. Right, yeah, exactly. I mean, so this is this is a situation where, you know, now the CBA offers um, to where you could get penalized and you don't get that money back if you hold out. But if you're Anthony Harris, still you're probably thinking that you were going to get $50 million and 30 guaranteed or something like that. So settling for 11 when you've worked really hard to get to free agency. I mean, people don't understand when they look at the free agent list and you go, I like this guy. I don't look like this guy. It takes a long time to get there. He was an RFA and, and is an RFA. You basically have no power unless someone comes in and gives you a huge offer. So you have to play for a long time to hit this point. And it's probably your only shot to get that huge deal. So it's probably worth 
holding out if you're Anthony Harris. And if you know that Harris is going to hold out if you don't give him a new deal, then you have to trade him. And if you think you can get him to a new deal, he's not going to come very cheap. And then you have to decide, well, do you really want to carry $25 million in salary cap hit into even next year when you're still going to be trying to win with Kirk Cousins? So it's a difficult position and at the top of my list for things that we're going to watch. But if you were to guess, when do you think this gets resolved? Because I've got draft night. I think they figure it out on draft night. It's a great time to do it, just like the Diggs thing, right? Like we said... Don't trade him. Don't trade him because the offers you're going to get are not going to be of peak value until free agency. So a similar situation is that this could end up playing out in, you know, on one of the, you know, probably one of the earlier rounds on draft night in three weeks from now. And, you know, they could get a haul of picks back for it and then they can go right to work. So, I mean, I think that that's probably the most realistic thing that we could anticipate happening. But I still wouldn't put it out of the realm of possibility that a trade could happen within the next three weeks, you know, potentially for a player of Trent Williams caliber. But it would only have to be for that. Like, it wouldn't be for anything else. Speaking of uh, potential trades on NFL Draft Day, we're going to talk with Cameron Wolf. He covers the Miami Dolphins for ESPN and see who what their plans are. I mean, I saw another mock today that has Tua there. Uh, there's Justin Herbert should be in their crosshairs. Or do they still have any belief whatsoever in Josh Rosen? They haven't traded him anywhere yet, so we'll find out. When we return, we'll talk with Cameron Wolf here on Purple Daily. The American Red Cross continues to face a severe blood shortage due to the coronavirus pandemic. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to please give now. Donating blood is safe and blood banks remain open all across the Twin Cities metro. To schedule an appointment, visit scorenorth.com keyword red to learn more and to give blood. Jonathan here with the Score North download. We'll use this download to let you know of a partner we have here at Score North. Score North continues to partner with the Ronald McDonald House Charities Upper Midwest to help make sure our area children continue to receive the meals and care that they need during the coronavirus pandemic. Thanks to Louisa Rise and the Minnesota Twins, one lucky person who makes a donation of any amount will receive a signed Louisa Rise Minnesota Twins jersey. Your contribution enables the Ronald McDonald House Charities Upper Midwest to continue to provide critical services to families dealing with a child's health crisis. Those services include overnight accommodations, complimentary meals, fully stocked pantries, laundry, and more. To donate, please visit scorenorth.com keyword donate. That's been your Score North download. Now back to the final segment of the day of Purple Daily. All right, thank you very much, Jonathan. Matthew Collar, Courtney Cronin, and we welcome into the show. He covers the Miami Dolphins for ESPN. Also, potentially a big Case Keenum fan as a University of Houston grad. Is that is that right, Cameron? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I, I, I mean, I, I figured you have to be. Case Keenum has to be like your guy that you hold up as one of the best players there ever. I didn't even say your full name. Cameron Wolf uh, is uh, the reporter here joining us on the show. But uh, that had to be exciting for you when a University of Houston quarterback went 13-3 and in the NFL. Yeah, absolutely. I remember watching him in college. He, uh, his final year in college was my first year. And uh, that was the year they went 12-0 and and almost made the Sugar Bowl and Case Keenum made a Heisman run. So I remember him from college and to see him uh, 
having NFL success is always good. So well, uh, definitely a Case Keenum fan. Certainly a career highlight uh, for Courtney and I to cover that crazy season. Hopefully you get one of your own soon because last year was pretty rough in Miami, but now you're set up in a really interesting spot as sort of being uh, at the center of the conversation leading up to the draft. So give us your feeling. Is it for sure a quarterback at number five for Miami? Are they for sure going to be interested in moving up potentially um, to that number two spot to tri- take Tua? What is your feel right now? Oh, yeah, I, I bet I bet some good money on them taking a quarterback with their first pick. I feel pretty confident about that. They know this is the issue they're going to solve. They can't kick the can down the road any further. So I think the the only real question is which which guy and whether or not they can stay at five or not. Um, I think they I, I know they like Tua a lot. The, the obstacle there will be how much does the coronavirus impact their ability to feel comfortable with him and their evaluation of his health. Um, and that's something we won't know until, you know, maybe draft day. But I think if they have an opportunity to get to a, I believe that's their guy. And, you know, because of the situation, it might actually work in their favor where they may need not need to move up to get them. They may be able to sit down there at five and still get their guy. I've seen a bunch of mock drafts out there that most have Tua going to the Dolphins, whether they trade up to get him, whether they say it five Cameron. I was reading one, though, from Cynthia, Cynthia Freeland of NFL Network, and it was an analytics-based mock draft. So, so obviously different things factoring in here, but she had right. Joe Burrow going to the Dolphins at five. From your perspective is there any other quarterback that could potentially be a fit for Miami in this draft class and and we know that the way that things are going to fall from one to five could change on draft night but do you see anybody else that they might be interested if it's not Tua oh I think they would love Joe Burrow I think they're very interested in Joe Burrow I I just don't think that Cincinnati's going to actually pass on and taking them or trade that pick I know there have been some speculation that the Dolphins may try to trade up and yeah, they may make a call, but I just don't see them giving up what Cincinnati would even uh, think about considering for that pick. So I think in, in my educated you know, uh, opinion on it, I think Joe Burrow and Tua are their, their top two quarterbacks in this class, and they would love to walk out of this draft with one of those two. Um, if it doesn't happen to be one of those two, that's when it becomes a little bit stickier. Do you take a Justin Herbert? Do you take a Jordan Love? Um, those are questions that, you know, uh, maybe not the best case scenario. Maybe that's the worst case scenario if you strike out on those two where you have to figure which of the, the third or fourth best quarterbacks you take. So, Cameron, uh, last year they trade a second-round pick for Josh Rosen, and I will admit that I thought, what a good move. <laughs> this this could work out super well for the Dolphins because this guy is a, a fairly high draft pick, a first-round talent, and he never had a chance in Arizona, just a bad team. But the times that he got in in Miami, it was pretty abysmal. Was it, once again, a bad offensive line, bad receivers and so forth, or... Have we kind of had the ship sail on, hey, maybe Josh Rosen's good? Uh, you and Dolphins GM Chris Greer thought that was good news. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think the thing with Josh Rosen, and I talked to someone close to him this offseason, um, the biggest thing that I think people don't understand is that he just didn't have a great understanding of the concepts of football. And I still don't think that he's fully advanced as you would expect a quarterback uh, at his level to be advanced. So I think that he's really intelligent um, in a lot of things, but I just don't know how much he is has been taught the game or fully understands it. And I think that has hurt him 
uh, throughout his NFL career. He's slow to process on the field. Um, he, he takes him a little longer to pick up an offense, which was a problem last season. So I think he's really got to have a team that spends some time and really invests in him uh, maybe multiple years and waits for the finished product. I think he's 23, still younger than Joe Burrow, so it's too early to quit on him. Um, but I just don't think he's going to get that opportunity to succeed in Miami. So you obviously had a very busy start to free agency. Your team handing out yeah. very lucrative deals to Byron Jones, we were Kyle Van Noy, extremely um, jealous. Thirty million dollar <laughs> and upward deals, just just throwing them out left and I right. Was jealous. I was jealous too. I want some. <laughs> Me too. Is it fair to say that Chris Greer, given some of the la- so the areas that lack strength in this draft class, is it fair to say that he addressed the areas in free agency that are the strengths that you know that they won't even have to kind of leaving those holes that still remain in the draft as being areas that they know they can hit on easier than they would have been able to had some of those positions from free agency not been addressed. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point, Courtney. I think that they really addressed defensive positions that they felt like they weren't going to have a strength going into the draft. They added three uh, front seven sort of edge defenders, essentially, and Shaq Lawson, Emmanuel Agba, and Kyle Van Noy, and that's not a strength of this draft. So I think they really felt like to address that position, they were going to have to do it in the free agency. And I think Byron Jones happened to be something where they were in the market for a corner, and he just happened to be something that they figured they can afford. And now they got two locked lockdown man-to-man corners and Byron Jones and Xavier Howard. And I think it really changes the landscape of this defense. I think that the Dolphins probably believe that the strength of this draft may be on the offensive side of the ball. So I can see them, you know, obviously getting the quarterback and going off into tackle and, and maybe getting the running back and a receiver. But they loaded up on that defensive uh, side of the ball in free agency so uh, they can go offensive heavy uh, later this month in the draft. Talking with Cameron Wolf, ESPN reporter, covers the Miami Dolphins. So what then would be the 2020 goal? I mean, if you're drafting Herbert or Tua, is the plan then to sit that guy, even if Tua was medically ready to play, have Fitzmagic play the year, try to be competitive? Because now with Tom Brady out of the division, it's kind of open season for the Dolphins, Jets, and Bills, and you could all make a case that they'll be in contention. Now there's an extra playoff spot. I mean, is it Fitzmagic yeah. makes a final Fitzmagic run? I mean, uh, you it would be a great story if he did. Yeah, I think you're absolutely on the money. They love Fitzmagic here in Miami, the people in the front office and the fans. So I think that's why Tua would be such a great fit with Miami and talking to people close to Tua earlier this offseason, they would love to be in Miami for similar reasons because they, I think ideally they would want their rookie quarterback to, to sit at least for a portion of the season and let Fitzy go. You know, he's a guy who's uh, played a lot of football. He's really comfortable with their new offensive coordinator, Chan Gailey. So there's going to be a lot of chemistry there in an offseason where chemistry is going to be super important. So I think this is going to be a Fitz year um, primarily, no matter who the rookie quarterback drafting. And then they head into 2021, and I think that's the year they're going to circle. We think we can really compete for the division that year with our new quarterback. So I think this is a definitely a bridge bridge year for Fitz, and uh, he can teach the rookie um, the ropes while they grow and prepare for the future. Now, you're kind of in a situation like Matthew and I are where you're anticipating having a very, very busy draft, 14 picks more than any other team in April, uh, six of them in the top 70. So 
Is it fair to say that just based on the projection of what holes they have left to fill for however competitive they want or expect to be in 2020, that they could have most of those needs addressed by the end of day two? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that when you look at what their holes are and what they filled in free agency, there's very clear holes still left. And they need at least one offensive tackle, maybe two, a quarterback, a running back to pair with Jordan Howard, and a free safety ideally, so that you can move Bobby McCain back to slot corner. And if you address those positions, which you can in those five or six picks, then you're looking at a team that's probably uh, definitely at the bare minimum uh, much improved and, and possibly could it, could compete you know, for second in that division. So I don't think this is too far off for a team that's at least competing for 500. They went 5-11 and 11 last year and surprised some people. Um, but I, I definitely think that their, their timeline is strength because of Tom Brady's retirement and because of their ability to hit all those needs in free agency and hopefully in a draft. So I think when we thought this might have been a three- or four-year rebuild, if they do this right, if they get the right guys, then it could be a two-year rebuild. And, you know, next season we're really looking at this team as, you know, a potential contender. Now, Cameron, before we let you go, I noticed from an article that you wrote recently when it popped up in my timeline, I went – Ah, yes, the old days of the great cornerbacks of the Miami Dolphins, Sam Madison and Patrick Sertain. Now, I know that you were covering the Titans before, and then you went to cover the Dolphins. I, I want to know, especially since you're quarantined and uh, probably spending some time researching old Dolphins, I, I want to know what's <laughs> been your, your favorite thing to run across with being a Dolphins reporter, because I love to watch old YouTube games, and the Dolphins are yeah. everywhere with the old games, whether it's Dan Marino or then Jay Fiedler shows up, and they had those great defenses that our buddy Sage Rosenfels played quarterback with Jason Taylor and the guys that you mentioned. Yeah. So what, what's been your, your sort of favorite thing to get fully immersed um as courtney and i have been through this experience of moving to a city and then learning everything about their team's history uh with the dolphins yeah i, I could really like single it out to three different eras of dolphins football um i think first marino and i'm just frank i'm a younger guy so i never really watched marino play mm-hmm. so i had to watch him when i first came in and just kind of see how much of a force he was how athletic he was how how much of his game was predicated on just having it, the it that we all talk about for a quarterback, and him having it, um, that was something that really impressed me. And then that that defensive era that you were talking about with Jason Taylor, Patrick Sertan, and Sam Madison, those guys were getting seven or eight interceptions a year each. And, like, that's unheard of, like, in this era. You know, if you, one guy gets seven or eight interceptions, he's having a defensive player of the year type year, and they had two guys doing it at a time. So that was something that was super impressive. And then last year, I spent a lot of time looking at the Wildcat Dolphins back in 08. Um, they had the 10-year anniversary with yeah, Ronnie, right. Ronnie Brown and Ricky Williams. And just kind of seeing just kind of maybe the peaks of the Dolphins era over the last 30 years, and those are probably three different peaks of it. Um, I, I had fun watching, especially because this team has had so much mediocrity over the last decade. It was, it was fun to watch you know, what fans remember as the positives of this team. And they have so many great players that show up. Like Keith Byers is on the early 90s teams, and he was a fullback slash running back slash tight end. They used to move him all over and throw him 50 or 60 passes a year. The O.J. McDuffie's of the world, the great punt returner and wide receiver. So yep, yep. It's, a, it's a very cool historical team, and I, and I love running across their old games. So anyway, um, at Cameron Wolf is where you can follow him on Twitter. Does a tremendous job covering the Miami Dolphins, so I implore you to do that. Great to catch up with you. Cameron, let's do it again, man. 
Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Uh, stay safe out there. Yeah, you too. Yeah, you too. Take care. All right, Cameron Wolf. Uh, Courtney, I must say, Dolphins are top three teams that shows up in my YouTube for old school. What are the other two? Well, Vikings are obviously number one. I mean, because sure. I'm always researching them. And then Buffalo Bills, obviously, for old Fair. games that I'm watching. I, mean, I should have figured that one. We just talked with Wade Phillips. I would, If I were to do, let me look real quick. Let me just pull this up. If I were to do top five teams that show up for 90s and early 2000s I want to guarantee football, that the Houston Oilers are in there in the top five. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. If we, th- let's say we throw out the Vikings because that's in part job related and in part also... Early 90s Vikings, early 2000s Vikings, sure. are, they've got a lot of great players. But let's, let's just put that aside. Houston Oilers are definitely way up there. Cordell Stewart, Pittsburgh Steelers, I tend to watch all the time. And they just show up in all the big games. Miami Dolphins for sure. Buffalo Bills. Probably probably Denver Broncos because I love watching John Elway. And he yeah. played in so many classic games. 49ers show up constantly because they were just so good for so long. And you know the random one that kind of pops up pretty often is the Seattle Seahawks. The Seattle Seahawks, when they were in those silver jerseys in the early 90s, like Rick Meyer played for them. He was just a massive quarterback bust. But they had so many great players on the old Seattle Seahawks that were, I mean, Walter Jones and Eugene Robinson, you know, the guys like that. So um, that's that's probably how it ends up being. But Miami is top three because they were playing in so many big games, even though they didn't sure. win Super Bowls. They're in AFC championships and they're in big rivalry games with the Bills. Patriots show up a lot with Drew Bledsoe. So. How fun would it be, though, if you didn't watch Marino growing up? Because Cameron is mentioning he's a younger guy. I think he's, his birthday was yesterday, so I think he just turned 26. But, I mean, in my last few years of like becoming an NFL beat writer, um, going back and watching the greats that I didn't just wasn't cognizant enough to, you know, be aware of when I was growing up. Like I was there before my time. Like it's kind of neat when you phrase it that way, when you kind of get to experience all this stuff for the first time and it's right at your fingertips. I know that you and I were talking last night because of my Sammy Sosa obsession that is very much coming into the forefront being back at my parents' house um, and finding all of this memorabilia. Like I can't wait to go back and watch a lot of games from the 1998 season because they are very much available on YouTube after you gave me that suggestion last night. I was just scrolling when I was trying to go to bed. I was like, wow, I can watch the game. I mean, obviously there's the game, um, you know, where from that season where he, you know, it's easy to find where he broke Roger Maris' record and and got to 66, but there's some other really good ones, and I'm very much looking forward to diving into that. Okay, before we wrap up the show then, we have to make make a top five players that we would have watched NFL-wise when we were... Young enough for players to still be sports heroes. Like you, you cross a certain threshold where it's just no longer that way. And maybe it's, I don't know. Like a sports hero to you specifically? Well, just like larger than life figures. And they just stick with you in a different way than they do when you're adults. So right now, as we watch Patrick Mahomes, Yes, sure, NFL music would be good, Jonathan. Uh, so when uh, we watch Patrick Mahomes, we look at it differently now as NFL reporters or even just adults probably do. Like, yeah, he's awesome. But as a kid, he's like the biggest thing in the world. Sure. You know? And Sammy Sosa was that to you on the baseball side. So in football, I I feel like we should just make an impromptu top five of the larger-than-life figures from our... I think early teens is where you understand sports enough to be this way, and you can really remember it. 
And so maybe it's like age 10 to 14 is where okay. the biggest stars. So I'll, I'll start it out. I mean, one is Randy Moss. Like sure. If, Randy Moss, I was, I think, 12 when Randy Moss comes into the league. So it's just the perfect age for Randy Moss to be the best thing in the entire world. And when you go back and watch Randy Moss, it's just, I mean, it was wow-inducing if you're an adult, but even more so as a kid, and you just want to see nothing but Randy Moss. Of course. And I mean, I, Jerry Rice. I mean, there's, I think, a handful of receivers that you could throw out there that were these mega superstars as you're growing up. And it's fun now to get to watch back in it because I don't really know if I knew what I was watching back then. I mean, mm-hmm. you knew it was greatness, but did you know to the level of that it was going to culminate at? I don't think so. No, probably not. Um, Barry Sanders is also sure. on my list. I, I had, as a little kid, there's a picture on Twitter of me wearing a uh, Patrick Ewing jersey. I also had a Barry Sanders jersey. And it's the, the guys who break the game and are just playing on a completely different level, those are ones that stick with you forever, where you want to tell someone who's younger, like Cameron Wolf, dude, you missed Barry Sanders. You would never believe this stuff. I mean, the, the same way that... People from the previous generation probably watched uh, Walter Payton with sure. the same sort of feeling. That's that was actually that's a really good one because I um, like I was too young to appreciate mm-hmm. that, and I mean it just didn't. You know, I wasn't alive during you know most of his like best years with the Chicago Bears, or at least my brain wasn't. Um, but that's I mean, as I became a football fan, like learning about him was like I'm <laughs> learning about a whole new era of football. Uh, it was fun. I mean, Emmett Smith, you could throw him in there. He was a icon in the 90s yeah except for i couldn't stand emmett smith because i thought he was so overrated because thurman thomas was my favorite player so okay. i, I well, always wanted bias on, yes, you have bias yes very on that, very much 10 year old me was extremely biased against emmett smith thinking well, he's got that great offensive line this is not fair um who else would be on your list of players that when you were just starting to become a football fan just really Favre. stuck with you? Yeah, Favre, Favre is sure. like, yep. you know, probably number 1 honestly mm-hmm. because it Favre and Elway. I mean, I told you about the times that Michael and I would get yelled at for trying to do the John Elway slide <laughs> and breaking the couch cushions at yes. my mom's house. Um I mean, that alone tells you what you need to know. I, and my fifth one because I gave you I gave you a couple already, but my fifth one, and this is probably teetering into, you're not really a kid anymore, Courtney, but watching Steve McNair play. Oh, yeah, like, no, Steve McNair's on my list. Like, yep. I think that, I mean, that to me, even though we never got to see the full depth of that, um, or at least, you know, I think that we could have seen so much more um, had his, you know, had a bit of different era of the NFL, let's just say that, because, I mean, that was 95 to 2005 when he was with the uh, the Oilers slash Titans. I don't really, I can't really remember him from the Ravens. And plus, I was too old. I was like 17 at that point. Um, but those years were fun. And I think that he's easily top five for most people. Yeah. McNair played with so much grit to his game. It, it was exciting to watch him run around and make plays. And then later in his career, he becomes a pocket passer and is sure. amazing at that too. So he had that excitement level that was sort of second coming of Randall Cunningham, but he also had this toughness where he would just run over people. And I think that when you watch someone like Jalen Hurts run over people in college, you think like there's, he's not Steve McNair, of course, but there's like this little flash of, Oh yeah, that's right. That's that was fun to watch when a quarterback could truck people. Um, on the defensive side, I saw just enough of Reggie White, but you know who was really incredible to me was Javon Curse. Like he didn't. I, I don't know how long he did it, Javon Curse, but when he came into the league, he was 
like this just how can I describe it? Like complete freak. I think they called him the freak. Mm-hmm. And he had a couple of years there. I'll try to look up real quick how many years he was really truly great. Um, but he had a couple of years there where he just dominated the game. Sure. And he was fun to watch. Yeah, he was Pro Bowl in his first three years, all pro, and had came into the league as a rookie, 14 and a half sacks, and then 11 and a half and 10, and never really did it again. Was never great again after that. Never got to double-digit sacks, but was one of those guys that you remember probably being way better than he actually was. But for that short period of time, he was unstoppable. Well, my first guy is, obvious, is I think, the most obvious one from the 90s, Deion Sanders. Yes, um, the M I mean, Sanders, super fun to watch. We used to do, my brother and I in the backyard, the uh, high step into the end zone, for sure. I mean, he's primetime. Like, I mean, the guy created a nickname that even as a kid, you're like talking about primetime. You have no clue what the heck you're talking about, <laughs> but it's awesome. Um, Bruce Smith, you yes, throw him in there. Yeah. Rod Woodson. Yep, for sure. Um, Reggie White. Those are a couple. Yeah, when Reggie White would just throw an arm into somebody and lift them off the ground. Uh, there were a lot of great running backs, too, that had their peak of time where they were really awesome and then, you know, they sort of faded, but at least for that moment, you know, somebody like Sean Alexander, that was that's probably a little I was probably a little too old to bring him up, yeah. but it was such a great era, the mid late nineties and early two thousands of running backs that there's a number of them that you could mention. So anyway, pretty cool for uh Cameron to go back and watch the old Dan Marino games. No one has ever thrown a football harder than Dan Marino. There are probably some people who could be equal but no one has ever thrown one harder. So what what did didn't Boone say that? Um, or didn't he compare? Uh, Colin Kaepernick was the one I remember, like specifically. Yes, Kaepernick that could up. throw a baseball like ninety six miles an hour, and he, was, he had more broken fingers, I think, from playing with him than any other quarterback uh, that he would have. I don't know why he would have been catching passes from him, but uh, for obvious reasons, he did. Uh, maybe in warm-ups, I think, probably, uh, I guess. I don't know. I guess. Um, but, Usually you're warming up. Yeah, but. he threw it pretty darn hard. So anyway, it's it's been fun to reminisce. You know, well, I'll, I'll give you one more, was the uh, the two receivers from Jacksonville, uh, Keenan McCardle and Jimmy Smith. There's a great a Football sure. Life documentary. And at some the point, one on Jimmy Smith? Yeah, on Jimmy I've Smith. It's it. fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as we go along, we'll start to make that a staple of just suggestions of stuff you should find and watch that is football-related, but... Uh, until that's probably after the draft because yeah, we're, I mean, we're going all in. Right, right now we're all in so if you missed any of our draft sims and austin gale's breakdown of those please uh listen to them wherever you get your podcast subscribe give it a five-star rating leave comments whatever you do and uh, we'll talk to you again on thursday courtney and i'll be back as always tomorrow mackie and judd with rami coming up next here on score north whether it's baker's simple truth turkey or mac and cheese with murray's english cheddar or pie made with fresh, cosmic, crisp apples. There are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays. And Baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy 5 or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. This view was worth a hike. Right? And it's a good way to stay on top of my health. Yes, I'm Colaguard, a prescription colon cancer screening option for people 45 plus at average risk. Have you screened for colon cancer? Not yet. Don't wait. It's more treatable when caught in early stages. Tell me more. Colaguard is non-invasive and it's used at home. 
It detects altered DNA in your stool to find 92% of colon cancers. 92%? Yep, even those in early stages. This was seen in a clinical study with patients 50 and older. Any positive result should be followed by a diagnostic colonoscopy. False positive and negative results may occur. Cologuard is not a replacement for colonoscopy in high-risk patients. Do not use if you have had adenomas, have inflammatory bowel disease and certain hereditary syndromes, or a personal or family history of colon cancer. Most insured patients pay zero dollars. Ask your provider or an online prescriber if Cologuard is right for you, or visit Cologuard.com. I'm in.